I've made it no secret that I am a uh, history buff. Um, so I like talking about history. One of my favorite parts of history to talk about is World War II. And if I was to have a favorite part of World War II, it'd be a toss-up between tank battles and dogfights. Now, dogfights has nothing to do with canines. Dogfights have to do with airplane battles. And World War II had some of the most epic battles ever. As a matter of fact, a whole battle called the Battle of Britain was fought over the nation of England for the future of the Western world. So I love that kind of stuff. But as I, as I read about history, it's not stagnant. Things change. And one of the things that changed right at the end of World War II was the type of airplanes went from propeller-driven planes to jet planes, which makes the dogfighting, let's be honest, even cooler, right? <laughs> one of the things that's interesting, though, is how the pilots that were so good at flying those Spitfires and the P-51s and the ME-109s, that's my nerding out, that's it, I'm not going to do any more. <laughs> so all of these plane, all these fighter pilots who were aces started struggling with the jet planes. And you go, oh, of course, I get it. There's new switches and knobs and things like that. No, that wasn't it. Is it because they're flying too fast? Well, kind of. But the problem these pilots were having, and it was so bad that these pilots would be training and they would be practicing dogfights, and in the middle of a fight, in the middle of a simulation, they would lose up and down, and they would actually careen towards the ground thinking they were going straight up. The problem was, was that with the turboprop planes, you had time to see the battle as it was developing. Okay, we're coming this way. We're protecting the bombers and so on. But with jet fighting, the enemy could be anywhere around you, and you have to orient yourself rightly to the battle. Because what ends up happening is, is you get confused, and before you know it, you're turning into a mountain, or you're diving into the ground. And so what they learned was they had to give the pilots means to orient themselves to their surroundings so that when they were fighting, they were able to not, you know, fly, fly into the ground. And this is really, really important because without the false horizon, it's a little gauge on their, on their, on their, on their heads-up display, without all of their altimeters and all the other things, they wouldn't know where they were. They wouldn't be in touch with reality. And that's really important for us. See, if our orientation is wrong, if we get disoriented for what reality is like, we're going to end up careening headlong into something that we shouldn't be hitting. And so today, as we begin looking at this next passage, Jesus has been telling us over and over and over again, he's the king, he's here on a mission, and today he clearly lays out this is what the world is like. You can either join in with reality or you can fight against it. You can't do any of both. And so as we look at this today, we need to understand that we have to ask ourselves, am I living in light of the really real? Am I living in light of the fact that Jesus has come and he's bound the strong man? Or am I still living like the rest of the world, which thinks that they're not bound, but they are. You know, when we look at some of the, the wording in the Bible, it talks about people being lost. 
And I know about you guys, but when I think about someone who's lost, I think about a deserted island, right? A deserted desert island, right? I don't know if there's any of those that exist anywhere. But there's a deserted desert island, and you're stuck there with just the slight glimmer that someone will save you. Today, though, Jesus' version of lost is not we're on some island hoping to be rescued. No, instead, we are bound and we are captured. We are prisoners of war that are in a stronghold of the enemy. But praise be to God, a stronger Lord shows up and he busts down the doors and he binds up Satan and his minions and he says, come, you are free. And so today, we need to get that in our minds. So we're going to analyze this passage, but then we're going to look at what this does to us as we walk forward. So we are going to talk about the devil today. One wise sage said that uh, humans do one of two things. They either ignore the devil, okay, that's negation, or they think too much about him, infatuation. The Bible is much more about moderation. Isn't that nice? They all, they all rhyme. <laughs> I didn't have to work hard on that one. We need to be right down the middle. We need to recognize that there is a devil, but we also need to not spend too much time thinking on him. Because why? Because he is strong, but our Lord is stronger. Amen? So we're going to be in touch with reality, and we're going to look at this today. So as we dig into this passage, we need to understand the Lord took the devil seriously. In John chapter 12, 31, and 14, 30, Jesus calls him the ruler of this planet, the one who is in charge of this planet. So what that means is, even though it looks like the people around us are going all sorts of different directions and there's no one in charge, they do have a Lord that they submit to. They do have a ruler that they are following. We as believers are following Christ. Everyone else is following the ruler of this world. And so Jesus is here today to clear the decks. He wants to get everything out of the way so we can see clearly that the kingdom has come. The one true king is here. What are we going to do in response to that? So here's our big idea. The reality is the king has come and he has conquered. Will you bow the knee or will you shake your fist? Which is it going to be? The king is here. The king has come. He has won. The war is essentially over. We're just waiting for him to do his final return. Are you going to bow the knee to him and say, you are my king, or are you going to say, I will resist you till the last breath? See, there's no middle ground. You're either serving the king or you're serving the usurper. You're obeying the king or you're obeying the usurper. Last week, Jesus was all about the gentle and the kind, and I think that's important that we understand that that's how he sees us. But he's not that way with his enemies. He's not that way with the devil. Instead, he's the bust-down-the-door SWAT man with all of his gear on going after the kidnapper, going after those who have taken what is rightfully his. The strongest man in the world, the ruler of this world, is puny by comparison. So one of the things I want to show you as we get into this passage is last week we talked about Isaiah 42, and we, we saw the quote about a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, and we talked all about how that's Jesus' attitude towards us. And Matthew has moved on into this next story that Frank just read. However, his 
his brain hasn't moved on past Isaiah 42. And let me show you. In Isaiah 42, in the next section, listen to these words, verses 18 through 25. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or as deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom you had sinned and whose ways they would not walk, whose law they would not obey? So he poured on them the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, and he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take heart. So Matthew is, is telling this, this passage last week that we saw, and the next section is dealing with someone who is blind and unable to speak and unable to hear and how they've been trapped and they're imprisoned and their stuff has been taken. And then he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew recounts this story that we're going to go into today. So Matthew has not left Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 is speaking right into where we're going because this is a promise that the Lord restores those who are taken. The Lord restores those who are prisoners of war. So let's start in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So the first thing we see is that Jesus sees his needs. Jesus sees this man has got issues. Now, it's not saying that every time someone's blind or mute that this is a demon possession. This is a singular instance of this. And really, Matthew, again, just kind of talks about the miracle like it's no big deal. He just goes, yeah, he healed him, and then they move on. I love that about Matthew. Then in verse 23, all the people were amazed and they said, can this be the son of David? This amazement. Now originally, they were the, earlier on we saw they were confused and they were like not sure what was going on. Here they're amazed. They're going, wow, this is something spectacular. And they asked the question, can this be the son of David? Another way to put this is, this man isn't the son of David, is he? What is this whole son of David thing? I mean, isn't, does that mean he's related to him by blood? No, this is the call for him as the Messiah. So now the crowds. Now Jesus has been talking about this for a while, but the crowds are finally going, huh, maybe this guy is the Messiah after all. Maybe this is who he is. And the Pharisees hear this, and it triggers them. And we get this response from the Pharisees, verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. Now notice, first off, they don't dispute the miracle. They're not like, well, I think he's faking. They didn't go, well, maybe he wasn't really deaf to start with. No, they can't discount the miracle. So all they can do is talk about the source. And they say, well, you, you healed that man. Yes, we, we acknowledge that, but you did it with bad powers instead of good powers. See, the Pharisees... The Pharisees are showing their cowardice here. They so desperately want to murder Jesus, but they know that would be against their law. So instead, they want to entice others to murder him for them. 
the cowardice of these Pharisees, trying to stir people up to do their dirty work for them. And, I mean, this escalated quickly. I mean, you could have gone like, you know, maybe it was the power of an underling demon. You know, maybe it was just, uh, but they go right to Satan, right? You see the evidence and they go, hmm, Satan. That's where they go with this. They don't go to anything else. They don't go to trickery or tomfoolery. They go instead right straight to Satan. Now, I wonder, did the Pharisees know how ridiculous this sounded? Were they like the talking heads on some of our television newscasts that are just getting cheap points? And they're like, okay, I know this is false, but I'm going to zing you with it anyways. They're calling Jesus empowered by the prince of demons. Now, it's not the first time they've done this. Back in chapter 9, verse 34, they called Jesus a devil worker. And Jesus just kind of left it alone. So why are the Pharisees going this route? Well, for them... They cannot conceive of the idea that there would be any power given by God to someone who's not like them. They can only imagine their version of understanding the Bible is the only way. And so there's no way God could give him power. So I don't think the Pharisees are deluded in this and that they are automatically lying. I think this is the only way to make sense of how they view the world, which is we are all right, and if you're not like us, you're all wrong. This word Beelzebul, I love this word. It means Lord of the Flies, which is a good book, by the way, but that has nothing to do with this guy. Probably a better understanding is Lord of Garbage, but even that doesn't get it. It means Lord of whatever attracts flies the most. So I've got some kids in here, so we're not going to talk about what attracts flies the most, but you can all imagine what that would be. So they are not, they're not saying anything kind about Jesus. They could have chosen a different way of saying this, but literally they're saying, Jesus, you are so wretched and so putrid that flies are your followers. What's interesting, though, is that look at the blind man. The blind man can now see. The people are starting to see, and the Pharisees are saying, we choose not to see. There's no simple way around it. These Pharisees are willingly blind to this. So this week, we see Jesus go on the defensive. He's going to defend what he's doing. Next week, he's going to go on the offense, and we'll talk about that a little bit next week. So now he's going to address this accusation. Look at verse 25. This is his first refutation. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. So translation, that's absurd. That's stupid. Really? You think that a kingdom that fights against itself is going to stand? This is truth on a level that no matter how unredeemed you are, you understand this. A group that fights itself will fall to any and all adversaries. This goes for governments and corporations, churches, and yes, even in families. Verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, we need to understand, Satan's evil, but he's not stupid. He is not stupid. Charles Spurgeon says, the devil is more cunning than our wisest human. Look at how he entangled Solomon. He's stronger than our strongest human. Look how he overthrew Samson. And yes, even men after God's own heart, like a David, have been led away by grievous sins and seductions. So the devil's not stupid. 
So the devil's not going to send his power to somebody to thwart his own plans. And so Jesus is saying, if I'm waging war on the devil, my power is coming from God and God alone. So this leads to refutation 2, verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now this comes from the fact that there were Jewish exorcists in this time. Many of them Pharisees. Jesus is not saying they were casting out demons, but they're claiming to. And so Jesus is saying, hold on a second, let's be consistent here, and that's not something the Pharisees are good at. Let's be consistent here, hypocrites. Your own people are over here casting out demons. But I'm over here casting out demons, and you say it's from the devil, but over there you're saying it's from God. Hmm, which one is it? It can't be both. So this, this, again, Jesus is using logic. He's using simple explanations to say, you guys have to deal with the fact that this is from God. So look at his third refutation, verse 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Pharisees are going, la, 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 we don't want to hear this. We don't want to even address this because the only logical conclusion is if the devil's minions are cowering and being thrown out of people, then this person is from God. So you better listen to what he said. And this is even more so for us because we are looking backwards through the cross, through the ascension, through John's telling us what's going to happen at the end of time in Revelation. We've got all the evidence we need that this man was the God-man, the member, second member of the Trinity. We have to reconcile that. That's the reality. And the Pharisees are going, no, we don't really want to deal with reality. Interesting here, Jesus says the kingdom of God instead of what he's been saying all the way through, kingdom of heaven, because he wants them to know this is from God and God alone. This spirit is the source of his power. And then Jesus, like a good teacher, he begins teaching. He uses an illustration. Look at verse 29. Or, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now at this point, I'm not sure the Pharisees really get this. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but I think the real benefit is for us and the disciples that listened to it at that time. If we're in Christ, if we're following him, this is the best news in the world. The ruler of this world who seems so much more powerful. Look at all the people flocking to his charge. That ruler is nothing compared to our God. That ruler is nothing. Look at, look at uh, Isaiah 49. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Or the passage we saw at the beginning, Taylor read to us, and I want to say it again, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison for those who are bound. This is not the Jesus that is gentle and meek and lowly. This is the divine warrior. He steps forward and he says, I don't serve Satan, I conquer him. Satan doesn't authorize me. I have authority over Satan. Jesus goes into Satan's realm. He doesn't sneak in. Oh, I hope he doesn't see us. 
No, he busts down the front door. Satan is strong. Jesus is stronger. He invades Satan's domain. He ties him up, plunders his goods, which is men and women who are under his thumb. Jesus' arguments prove that God has entered the world in power through Jesus' mission. See, one can't, protect, one can't go into a well-protected home without first rendering the guard or guards powerless. These exorcisms and these, the healings that Jesus does show that we are on the verge of D-Day. D-Day is the day that the, the Allies advanced and, and landed in Normandy, which spelled the end of World War II. D-Day is the cross. We are on the way to the beaches right here in the gospel. And once D-Day hits, the, the war is essentially over. But it hasn't come there yet. And instead, Satan is in his death throes. He's like a chicken with his head cut off, or maybe a snake with his head cut off, flapping around trying to take people with him. So we see this passage, and it leads to a question. Hopefully, when you're reading your Bible and you see something, you ask questions of it. That's the best way to learn. How is it that Satan is bound? That sounds like he shouldn't be getting into any kind of mischief, but yet, in the rest of the book of Matthew and throughout the New Testament, Satan's doing stuff. So what does it mean that he's bound? He seems like he's doing stuff today. That's a good question. What this means is it means that Satan cannot stop what God is doing. There's still things that he can do, but there is no way now to stop what Jesus has already accomplished. The war is essentially over. All he can do is try to take people with him as he's going. He is at the end of his time. Jesus is wanting us to see that just as we saw from the beginning, Satan is a created being. His power is derivative. The Spirit's power is supreme. It's ultimate. Colossians tells us this. Look at Colossians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what happened at the cross is that the, 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 they're lay, having to lay down their arms. They can no longer win. There's nothing they can do. See, Jesus, was, Jesus didn't make it a habit of sitting in his throne and enjoying the angels doing tricks for him. No, he's about coming down and kicking down doors and taking the captives and freeing them. We saw this, this incarnational attack. One, one commentator said this is what Jesus did. He came down incarnationally in the flesh to attack the devil, to announce his victory, to win the victory. We saw this with his first victory in the wilderness. We saw it most decisively in the cross, and we are all going to see it, believer or unbeliever, when Jesus returns. To bind the strong man, you must be stronger still. So when you see things in this earth that are going so wrong and you say, oh my gosh, evil is so powerful, remember this passage that evil's power is derivative. God's power is supreme. So our God is so much more powerful, it's not even on the same scale. Wow. Think about that God that we serve. If the devil's power is enough to enthrall billions of people on this planet and to cause things to happen that are just mind-boggling, 
We remember some of the stuff that happened in World War II. It defies, it defies anything that we can ever imagine. If that's the devil's work, imagine how much greater God's work is over the top of it. How awesome is that? There's an allusion here to the Exodus. If you remember the story of the Israelites, they were under the thumb of the, uh, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And it said that God bound Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, go and take gold with you. I don't want to see you again. And it says the Israelites plundered the Egyptians of their gold. This is the same picture we see here, that Jesus is plundering the house of Satan. Jesus is taking POWs and making them disciples. This divine warrior come to fight the climatic battle of, all, of the ages and win. So now, Jesus gets to the heart of the issue, which he always seems to do. Look at verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So we can't be ambivalent about Jesus. There's no middle way with Jesus. It's impossible to be neutral. Anyone who's not actively following Jesus is not neutral. They are rejecting Jesus. There is no neutral ground. To refuse to follow Christ is to be on Satan's team. Those of us who say, well, I don't want to be too devoted to Christ because that's pietism that doesn't work. Those who say, I don't want to make a decision for Christ because that's too fundamental, that doesn't work. Those who say, well, Jesus being the only way because that's too exclusive and fanatical, that's not for me. Those who say, I don't tell others about Jesus because that's proselytizing and that's bad. Every single one of these trying to navigate a neutral ground for things that Jesus calls us to, to be devoted to him, to see him as the only way, to tell others, making a decision to follow him, these are all required because of the fact that he is the true king. There is no middle of the road. J.C. Ryle writes this, There are many people in every church who need to have this lesson pressed upon them. They endeavor to steer a middle course in religion. They're not so bad as many sinners, but they're not saints. They feel the, church, the truth of Christ's gospel when it's brought before them, but they're afraid to confess what they feel. Because they have these feelings, they flatter themselves that they're not as bad as their neighbor. And yet they shrink from the standard of faith and practice that Jesus has set up. They are not boldly on Jesus' side, and yet they are not openly against him. There are only two parties in all religious matters. There are only two camps. There are only two sides. Are we with Christ in his cause, or are we working against him? That's, that's, that's it. That's what it says here. Now, we must understand that some of you in this room might be new to this whole Christianity thing. Might be new. Re remember that Jesus has been now preaching for over a year. So some of you are not there yet to join Christ's side. And that's fine. However, you can't stay there. A fence sitter is not on Christ's side yet. A fence sitter is somebody who's trying to have it both ways, and that's having not Christ. So if you're here and you do not, you have not done this, and you're still sitting on the fence, and maybe you're going, I got questions. Great, ask them to somebody. Talk to your life group leader. Talk to an elder. Talk to me. Get these questions answered. Because ultimately, it's about, um, am I going to submit and bow the knee to Christ, or am I going to hold my fist up 
and rebel. And it's simple. There's no magic words. You can put it in any way you want, but it involves saying, Lord, I submit to you. I want to be on your side now and always. Make me yours. Not, oh, I I accept you and I'll put you there. Make me yours. Lord, make me yours. Take me. Bust down the door. Bind up the person that's holding me, the devil, his minions, and break me free because that's what true life is. The two sides are laid out. It's very clear. Now, if you are here and you are someone who has given your life to Christ and you have a relationship with Christ, there's something else hidden in this passage. Trevor, could we go back and put up verse 30 again for me? This second part is where I want to finish with. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is a call to evangelism. He's saying, if you're on my side, you're on my side. You can't be on both. He didn't just leave it there, but he went to, if you're not gathering, then you are scattering. See, Satan's side in this room is the do-nothing side. Satan's side is just sit, just, you know, sit here. We're going we're gonna to make a church, and we're going to make it look really nice, and people will be drawn to the church. Guys, that's not what the Bible teaches about Christianity. Christianity has never been a come and see. It's a go and tell religion. And that's what we see right here in this passage. I'm pointing to there because it's on the screen there. This passage. <laughs> it's, a, it's a go and tell religion. Think about it this way. If you imagine our lives, we have a big conference table is our life. I know, that's not super exciting we got this big conference table, and there's all these chairs around the conference table. There's a seat for my career self. There's a seat for my sexual self. There's a seat for my hobbies. There's a seat for my family. And there's a seat for religion. And I say, eh, Jesus, I accept you. Come on in here and take a seat. And we go, see, I know Jesus. He sits at the table. And Jesus comes in, and he says, oh, it's so nice to be here. I have some really good ideas about some changes if you guys are willing. Oh, you're not? Okay, I'll just sit here and I'll talk to you on Sundays. Guys, that's not the Jesus that we're seeing here. Jesus is like William Wallace from Braveheart. He comes in and he goes, this is my table. I am the king. This is mine. You all serve me. And unlike a human like William Wallace who has his flaws and all that, He comes in and he goes, you know what, career, I want to redeem you. You know what, sexuality, I want to redeem you. Hobbies and interests, family, all of this, you're mine, and I'm going to extend my rule into all these chairs, and every single chair is now going to be fulfilled and satisfied more completely because you've allowed me to sit where I belong, which is as the king of your life. So how do we live this out? We live it out in the knowledge that the war is over. The decisive blow has been landed. We don't need to fear or dread what's happening next. We know the end of the story. The worst they can do is kill us and send us to Jesus sooner. That's the worst they can do. So how does this affect our lives? Well, for some... It's about having a mantra. We're going to practice victorious living or triumphal lives. 
and, and yeah, there's a place for having something to kind of rah-rah. And there are some, some teachers that will say, well, you, you, you claim the victorious life and now you have it. That's the power of positive thinking. That's not what the Bible says. Instead, what we need to do is we need to return to the fact that Jesus has won the battle. He's done all the lifting. So there is nothing to fear by letting people know that the battle is over. There's nothing to fear. Jesus has won. The strong man cannot win. Jesus is the stronger man. So why do we keep this to ourselves? Why are we those who don't gather? Why is it that we are, I go to church and I take care of me when I'm surrounded by people who are POWs that I'm not willing to tell the good news to? Think back to that D-Day discussion. The war's done. It's over. Imagine that Germany has surrendered, but we go, hey, you know what? There's these pockets of Nazis. We're just going to let them do their own thing because we've already fought the war. And, and, and really, if they, if they want to be free, they can see we're free over here, and they'll just kind of flock to us. You see how ridiculous that is? Instead, we go to them. We bust down strongholds. So, we have no excuse not to be courageous when it comes to what we share and who we share with. Every single person you're going to encounter is either a believer that needs encouragement or is somebody who doesn't know the Lord and needs to be broken free. Not your job, God's job, but he uses us for whatever reason. He uses fallen us. So how does this change our day? How does this change it? Instead of seeing everything as a, this could make my day good, this could make my day bad, this is this, this is that. Every single thing you're going to encounter today, tomorrow, the rest of this week is opportunities to put the God who's won it all on display. To show to your neighbor, to show to your coworker, to show to the person bagging your groceries that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how we do what this passage has been talking about, this courageous living, the, the living in light of the strong man to gather instead of scatter. So I pray our evangelism may be powered by the truth that we serve the stronger man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this story that your servant Matthew has included right here in the middle. Lord, I, I, I praise you for the fact that you are the strong man. That yes, Lord, you are gentle with us. You care for us if you're your adopted children. But Lord, you're also strong and mighty to break down strongholds. And Lord, we're really, Lord, forgive us for missing out. Lord, hearing this morning from a, a brother about how you're working and, and moving and doing amazing things Lord, he was right there to see it. And I, I fear that for many of us, we don't see it because we're not willing to go there. We're not willing to be right there where you're working. And you're working on those who are still in chains. So Lord, I pray that now as we remember what you did on that cross and our part in it, that Lord, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.